Okay, hello everyone and welcome to Actus Radio, the nation's only radio program dedicated to the clinical documentation improvement profession. Actus Radio is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and to Actus. Today, Wednesday, June 28th, marks our 71st program. So my name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialist, and I'm your regular co-host, regular host for today's program, Mastering Clinical Concepts, Deep Delve into MIs. So I'm joined today by my co-host, uh, you can see him on the screen there at the left, Paul Evans. Paul is an RHIA, CCDS, CCS, and CCSP, and is manager of a regional CDI program located on the West Coast. Uh, Evans previously served as a project manager at Laguna Medical Systems, where he was responsible for a staff of 12 senior auditors performing compliance reviews at more than 30 hospitals. Uh, Paul is a member of both AHIMA and the advisory board of Actus. You may have seen him as a byline contributing to multiple articles regarding quality and data management, a recent one on sepsis. Uh, he's a frequent contributor to our CDI talk uh, Actus Forum on the Actus website, and I'm very pleased to have him with us here today. So welcome, Paul. Good morning, Brian. Thank you for the invitation. Happy to be here. All right. Excellent. Next, I'd like to uh, introduce today's industry guest, who is usually in the co-host chair, but we have him guesting today on a topic he's very familiar with. We have with us uh, Alan Frady. Alan's an RN, BSN, CCDS, and CCS. He is a CDI education specialist here with us at HC Pro and Actus, where he teaches our clinical documentation improvement boot camps and serves as a subject matter expert here for us. Uh, Alan, by background, is an accomplished consultant with a background in coding and documentation. Uh, that includes 12 years as a coding consultant, two years as a coding director, and six years as a CDI consultant. You can see some of his uh, nursing and clinical experience there. And I'm very pleased to have him on the show. So uh, welcome, Alan. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me back on again. All right. It should be a good one. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and ask our audience a poll question related to today's topic. Um, we'll, of course, come back to the results in just a few minutes. So the question reads, how would would you describe your organization's ability to document and report myocardial infarction specificity? Is it, would you describe it as outstanding, which means queries are very rare, physicians mostly get that correct? Uh, would you describe it as good, maybe occasional clarifications, reminders needed? Uh, fair, meaning you might need to query often for this diagnosis? or perform a lot of education on it. Uh, perhaps you describe it as poor, meaning we, you report a lot of unspecified codes in the end, you don't get answers, it's a, it's a continual problem, um, or not applicable. We realize not everyone is might working in a setting where you'd be clarifying this. So again, would you describe uh, your organization's ability to document and report MI specificity as outstanding, good, fair, poor, or not? applicable. All right, we've got about three quarters of our attendees voted, so we will go ahead and we will close this out 
and uh, we'll return to that um, later on in the program. Great. All right. Thanks. Well, as I mentioned, our guest today is Alan Frady, uh, but we also welcome uh, co-host Paul Evans on. He's going to be participating equally in discussion. Again, thanks for being on the program, guys, and for being a part of Actus Radio. Um, I'll just jump right in. You know, for a question with Alan, since we're focusing on myocardial infarctions today, it's always good to start maybe with foundations, definitions. Alan, I mean, hoping you could maybe talk a little bit about third universal definition of an MI, which as we've been hearing, is it in itself problematic for purposes of coding and reporting. Um, you know, it defines criteria for an MI, although not everyone who meets criteria actually has an MI, which could perhaps result in some false positives. So maybe you could talk a little bit about, about uh, the definitions and that, that issue in particular. Yeah, let's review the criteria. Um, as you said, the, the one that we review or that we cite most frequently is the, called the Third Universal Definition of an MI, and this came out in 2012. Prior to that, there was one in 2007. So given the update pattern, I think there was another one around 2002 or three. I'm expecting possibly a new version of this any time now, to be honest with you. Uh, but what it states is that if you have a troponin at a 99th percentile or greater than your normal uh, lab's reference range, and you have any one of a number of things, which could include EKD, EKG changes, such as new onset Q-wave, bundle branch block, ST elevations, um, if you see uh, positive findings of occlusive disease on a cardiac cath or findings of new onset wall motion abnormalities, you have that combination of any of those things, it is supposed to be criteria positive for an MI. Now some of those are type 1, some of, some of those could be type 2s. There's another criteria which is just symptoms of ischemia and that's probably my criticism of it and I think you know sometimes it's the concern of the cardiologist. You can have a patient who meets the troponin threshold and simply has a vague symptom of ischemia which could be abdominal pain. And without knowing the person's uh, baseline status and the possibility of having those false positives, you're going to get situations there where there'll be criticism of the criteria and I guess concern for you know overuse. And I think that's some of the pushback that we get from our cardiologists. Great, thanks. Uh, so, Alan, that's a great point. Can you? delve into that a little bit deeper, some of the controversy, because you just addressed the issue of ischemia versus acute necrosis, and given that some cardiologists might not agree a criteria for acute MI might be met with the third universal definition, uh, particularly for demand-mediated MI, there is some disagreement in the industry. Uh, we could have a situation where cardio cardiologists might uh, not be comfortable endorsing the diagnosis of an acute MI while an attending or a hospitalist might use, might review the same patient, same criteria, and document something like a non-STEMI. So um, when we see that, do you have any, any words of wisdom, or how do you think we might be able to address such situations? Yeah, you know, and it's, it's hard to actually draw a line in the sand and say what's to the left of this line is ischemia and what's to the right of this line is an infarct. So there's some subjectivity. Now, some of the things that can cause false positives could be pericarditis, uh, extreme CHF, end-stage cardiomyopathy, PE. 
end-stage renal disease, even severe dehydration. You could have somebody who had chest trauma or CPR, obviously procedures, those things can elevate the troponins. You know, if you have ischemia, that's really a temporary cellular stress. Uh, it's induced by decreased perfusion or hypoxia in the cardiac muscle, which may increase the troponin levels, to be honest with you, but does not necessarily result in a large area of permanent cellular necrosis. An infarct, on the other hand, is completely irreversible cellular necrosis, which can actually be the, the, the result of continued untreated severe ischemia. So the old school definition is that an MI has not really occurred until you are sure there is ample uh, necrosis. And the third universal definition, when you look at the criteria, it's a little bit more aggressive. And it embraces the idea that if you have a sufficient global ischemic insult to the heart, once it meets a certain threshold, they believe that that should be classified as an infarct um, known as a type 2. And many will agree with the phrase type 2, but I see a lot of cardiologists will say, yes, type 2, but I don't want to call it an NSTEMI. And that is, that is where the conversation will end sometimes with the cardiologist while the hospitalist or the internal critical care guys um, will go ahead and give you the NSTEMI. We probably wouldn't have this issue if it weren't for the coding. Um, as you know, right now, there's no way to index a type 2. There's not a separate code for a type 2 MI. Yeah, it, it certainly is, I agree with you, more aggressive than, than we've seen in decades past. I, I remember when I went to college, we didn't have troponin. Um, I would encourage everyone to download the paper, and you touched on something else. In the paper, there are different types of MIs. Um, MIs after PTCAs and cabbage, and, and that's going rather deep, but there's some really good information in the article, too, that speak to situations that tells why patients may have elevated troponin but not necessarily have an MI. Great, excellent. You know, we're, we're going to get to this a little more in the In the News segment about some new codes released, but just to maybe give a, a, a little preview of that, you know, we, we did have some new codes released on uh, June 13th by the Coordination and Maintenance Committee, uh, and they do have a separate category for type 2 demand MI. So, Alan, could you maybe provide our audience with just a brief uh, preview of these new codes and discuss whether they will be reviewed in quality and data metrics as, uh, as not truly indicative of necrosis? Yeah, I believe this might be helpful. Now, a word of caution, I don't spend too much time looking at the March proposals, the early proposals, because a lot of the stuff that we think might be new codes, and we saw this last year, uh, we thought we were going to get hepatic encephalopathy codes back, and we did not. So I don't, I don't spend too much time, but I think this would be very helpful. Uh, what it will do, I think, is possibly satisfy the cardiologist's concerns by creating a separate bucket for demand ischemia, which is more severe demand ischemia, you know, it meets that 99% threshold and you know the precipitating stress event that caused it. But it keeps it separate from the other infarction codes. And I think then maybe you can move towards getting a more apples-to-apples -apples comparison of the severity, risk of mortality, and the data. And that could possibly satisfy the, the cardiologist's concerns and have them um, more willing to go along with documenting and the coding of the type 2 MI. Uh, Alan, let me ask you a question um, about this condition in the setting of sepsis. Um, our staff actually endorsed the concept that sepsis can cause um, this type of ischemia, which, which can result in true myocardial necrosis. 
Um, given that you know you consult and you're in touch with a lot of people across the nation, I'm just curious if you've seen these type two MIs documented uh, much um, stated as due to sepsis, and if you do, do you have any any thoughts on whether or not this meets criteria for severe sepsis, given that, uh, or what we'd call sepsis using the sepsis three criteria, given that. Um, Sepsis three states that um, sepsis, true sepsis, is present when there's an acute organ dysfunction. So, how do you see that relationship between a type two MI and sepsis? I find this very interesting. Uh, severe sepsis is absolutely one of those diagnoses that is known to precipitate the circumstances that would lead to a type two or demand-mediated MI. Um, it, it just is. And if you look at the precipitating stress events that are underlying that infarction and, and what the pathophysiology is, what's precipitating it is usually a low blood pressure, maybe a hypoxemia in the blood or a hypoxia to the, to the cardiac muscle. You've got some type of a poor perfusion situation that is occurring as a result of the sepsis that's impacting the heart, likely imp impacting other organs as well. And honestly, if their sepsis is that bad, we're borderline into the conversation now about whether or not we should be looking at a diagnosis of septic shock. Um, so certainly the guidelines state that you can't have septic shock unless you have first severe sepsis. So I mean, look, look, we call it severe sepsis if you have, for example, liver enzymes uh, that are elevated because of the perfusion issues with the liver. If you have encephalopathy and brain malfunction because of the perfusion issues and the, and the uh, hypoxia, hypoxemia, and all the stress of sepsis. So why wouldn't we also call it severe sepsis if it was precipitating a demand-mediated MI? There may be some disagreement about whether an MI is organ failure because we, we have a mm -hmm. differentiation between heart failure and an infarct. But if the stress event is bad enough to precipitate an infarct, I believe that would qualify as a, a severe sepsis and a septic-related organ failure in the same way that, uh, again, if you got acute tubular necrosis of the kidney or you had, uh, you know, acute shock liver or anything else, those would all be organ failures as well. This is no different. Yeah, real quickly, I, I agree with you, and that's one reason why I think the six organ systems and so far are not complete, um, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yes. I think a lot of physicians like the definition of sepsis 3, but I know myself yep. and at least some of the physicians are not thrilled about SOFA criteria and just limiting sepsis to those six body organs. Excellent. Thanks, guys. Uh, Paul, do you have another question you want to ask about coding? Yeah, so, so in, in the interim, um, you know, uh, Alan, since coding clinic has has stated that type 2 MI should be coded as non-STEMIs. So, you know, what do you see as the implications for type 2 reporting as um, non-STEMIs per coding clinic? Um, you know, we see an infarct being being reported now when doctors were attempt, attempting maybe to communicate ischemia. What are your thoughts about that? Do you think this would be a downgrade uh, to, to the considered severity of a non-STEMI, or do you think cardiologists who become aware of the coding clinic might change their documentation practice. How do you see the, the correlation between clinical reality and coding clinics advice? What I think that is, what do you think? I'm sorry, I think that's absolutely a possibility. If you'll recall prior to, I think it was around 2007-2008, acute renal failure used to be a major complicating comorbidity. And when we started to embrace the more aggressive definitions from AKIN and KDIGO, 
what we found was we reported AKI a lot more and the cost of it seemed to drop because we were catching it on less and less severe patients. And as a result, CMS downgraded that diagnosis to a CC. I think it's entirely possible that uh, if the cost associated with a, a type 2, say we get the new code for type 2 demand mediated MI, or now we're reporting it, we'll get to that in the you know, coding clinic now says that type 2 isn't in STEMI. If, if CMS sees reduced cost, reduced severity, reduced length of stay, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if at some point in the future they would downgrade not all MIs, but the type 2 from counting as a CC, uh, an MCC down to a CC. I think that would be reasonable, and honestly, I, I don't necessarily object to that, um, depending on how bad the, the type 2 is, especially if we can differentiate NSTEMIs from type 2s. On the other hand, since I know some of the cardiologists don't like it, and the cardiologists are quite aware that if they write, in the past, that they wrote type 2 MI, it would be CAD with unstable angina. They may be surprised to find these being reported as NSTEMIs, and after that, they may start to alter their documentation so that it's not reported as an NSTEMI. So honestly, which way that would go, you probably see some of, some of both of those situations occurring and how that plays out is anyone's guess. Great, Thank thanks. You. Thanks, Alan. Um, yeah, maybe we could wrap up with just a discussion here on any other helpful suggestions the two of you might have for uh, CDI specialists that might be struggling with this diagnosis, any helpful references or resources you could point them towards Alan, I actually had a question from someone about uh, the article you referenced earlier of, of what that was. So maybe you could reiterate that and, and anything else you might recommend for people. Sure. The, the third, so it's, um, it's a criteria more so than an article. It's called the Third Universal Definition of MI. It was endorsed by both the American Heart Association and I think the American College of Cardiologists as well. And uh, you can do pretty much any cursory Google source and find the article. The original, I don't have the link up, but it's easy to find. It'll probably be your first search result on a Google search about what the third universal definition of MI. Again, it gives you the criteria. A patient can be criteria positive, and they may very well have the diagnosis. But remember, that's the choice. That's the purview of the physician. Some patients may meet the criteria and not have a diagnosis. That's always possible. Um, it's even possible to have somebody who did have an NSTEMI and and maybe they don't look like they're meeting the criteria because of the complex disease interaction. So keep that in mind. But absolutely, if you're not using that in your program, it's something that I would add to your toolkit and your reference library. Um, go and, and seek it out on Google. I think we reference it in most of our education as well. Great. I absolutely agree. Download it, read it, take the pertinent parts to your clinicians, your compliance department reference it. Uh, we use it to help us define our CDI practice and we use it to try to determine if or when we feel a query might be mandated. Um, in particular, there are additional types of MIs. Alan referenced briefly. Uh, you can't get it all because of time restriction, but uh, it's a very useful article to read and uh, I think we should all read it and have it in our library. Right. I will, um, after the show, I'll put a link to it in the, in the notes for the show that we post on actus.org. So really appreciate that, guys. All right. Why don't we go ahead and share the uh, results of our poll. Pull that back up. Again, we asked folks, um, how would you describe your organization's ability to document and report myocardial infarction specificity? So 11% said outstanding. Queries are very rare. Uh, most, 56%, say good, meaning occasional clarifications uh, are needed. 
17% say fair, meaning they do need to query often still to get this specificity. 9% uh, poor, we report a lot of unspecified codes, and 6% not applicable. Um, what do you guys think? Maybe I'll start with Alan. Does anything here surprise you about this, the poll results? It seems about right. Some of it depends on the level of sophistication of the CDI program and or the coding and how much education they've had. The problem that I've seen in reviewing charts is that that case that you get where the troponin was really elevated, you can clearly see what the uh, precipitating stress event was and the patient's getting a lot of resources and, and the doctor's writing troponin leak, troponemia, uh, acute coronary syndrome. He's writing one of those alternate terms and it seems like you have a full smoking gun that was absolutely need to be reported is probably an NSTEMI. It's absolutely a type 2. And again, now coding clinic says that the type 2s are going to be cross-referenced as NSTEMI, so that fixes part of the problem. But it's not a query that I had to do every day. It's a query that I would do um, maybe once a week, maybe once every two or three weeks. So based on that, I would say that these numbers look about right. What do you think, Paul? Uh, I, numbers look about right. I actually think Overall, outstanding or good of 67% is pretty good, better than I thought the poll would show. Um, we do see a fair amount of type 2 demand ischemias due to anemia and infection and so forth, and um, we do issue queries and we use the definition reference as a basis for the query. And I, we do see troponin leak, troponinemia, and terms like that used interchangeably with non-STEMI as well. So. Uh, it can be a bit confusing. It's a bit like urosepsis and sepsis. It probably will not go away, and it's something we have to keep on our radar. All right. Excellent. Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks for our audience for sharing those poll results. All right. We will move on at this time to our In the News segment. Uh, In the News is a regular segment featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession. Today I'd like to describe uh, discuss, no, maybe discuss a recent article from uh, RevenueCycleAdvisor.com, which is CMS releases the 2018 ICD-10 CM codes for October 1st implementation. Uh, you can find that article there. It's on the Revenue Cycle Advisor website, as I have pulled up on your screen. Um, you know, from the article, again, these codes do not go into effect till October 1, so just Let's just get that out of the way first of all. But starting on that date, you will, uh, according to this article, you'll be able to select a specific ICD-10 code when a patient is in remission from abuse of each of a variety of substances, including alcohol, opioids, cannabis, nicotine. Um, and as we're going to get to in a moment, we do have some new MI codes and heart failure codes as well. So it looks like we've got uh, a total of 360 new, 142 deleted, and 226 revised diagnosis codes. Um, the article links to the CMS website where you can find the complete listing. I'm showing you that here. Uh, this has the uh, also has the um, well will have the general equivalence mappings or gems, which are are due out on in August of 2017, which include the the, the actual IC10 guidelines and any changes there. The POA exempt codes, conversion tables. Those we're waiting on those for the CDC, but. Right now, we do have the, the codes that are will be effective um, October 1st. So go ahead and check those out. Again, from the article here, just summarizing a few of those changes that are coming. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about the, the MI codes that are going to be added. It looks like we're going to have new codes for 
uh, myocardial infarction type 2, I21.8A1, and other myocardial infarction type, I21.A9. Uh, that means you will need to take into consideration the type of MI the patient's having. Um, in addition, codes added under ST elevation MI codes clarify that the conditions of type 1 MI. Uh, we have some new heart failure codes, uh, new codes for various types of right heart failure, including acute, chronic, acute on chronic, and unspecified. Uh, new codes to report for right heart failure due to left heart failure, biventricular heart failure, um, high output heart failure, and end-stage heart failure for patients with an advanced form of disease who no longer res respond to medication. Um, that's just some of the stuff relating to our topic today. We have um, antenatal screening codes, um, really more than 100, um, and also more than 100 deletions that were not in the proposed code set. So again, we tend to, this tends to happen. The proposal comes out, as you mentioned earlier, Alan, and things do change. So um, would encourage folks to go ahead and check out those new codes, additions, revisions, deletions. Um, we don't have information yet on whether these will be, you know, CCs, MCCs. Those are, those are released with the uh, OP, excuse me, the IPPS final rule in August. Uh, so we're not sure of the payment ramifications yet, but we at least have the codes and their and their titles. I think my, my old friend and a regular Actus Radio uh, uh, guest, Jim Kennedy, sent me an email with those codes as well. So we'll, we'll, we'll relating to the MI codes, so we'll get those up again in the show notes for you all. But um, I'll just pick it over briefly to Paul and Alan. Do you have any, any early feedback from either of you on the new codes, including the, uh, the heart failure or the MI codes or, or any of the others you guys wanted to mention briefly? Uh, oh, I think you had a Alan. question. Uh, I think you had a question about the right heart failure. And um, uh, what was the question again about? Well, yeah, we I, can I had a comment. I'm sorry, you had a comment question. Given that right heart failure usually occurs with a corpulmonale or a PE, uh, uh, I was wondering how you feel that that might play into this, as well as since quite often right heart failure, uh, since right now the rules default hypertension, two forms of heart failure, I, I was wondering, or in my mind, wondering how this might play out when the new rules go into effect, the relationship of hypertension and right side of the heart failure. Yeah, I have that question as well. Uh, the, way it, the way it is right now today, if the patient has unspecified left heart failure, you get a credit as a complicating comorbidity. Um, and if they call it acute, you can't do much with it until they specify it as systolic or diastolic. Now, right-sided heart failure went to an unspecified CHF type of a code and did not provide anything as far as being a complicating comorbidity or any additional severity or risk adjustment. But if we are now going to have new codes for acute right-sided heart failure, one might anticipate right. that that's the diagnosis we would want to look at because I imagine it would be at least a CC uh, and possibly carry more ranking. I don't know what kind of data CMS is looking at, but they may be wanting to actually capture that so they can get some granularity in there on, the, on it. Um, if a patient has core pulmonale, however, we can't we still can't report acute core pulmonale except in the circumstances of when they have an acute pulmonary embolism, which means you would have to default to reporting that clinical situation, You're almost by default, as acute right-sided heart failure, and then you'd have to report the core pulmonale as chronic. If we were to get a new code for acute 
core pulmonary in the absence of a PE, that would be great. And in that situation, I wouldn't report the, the heart failure at all. I would, I would assume, and this is just conjecture on my part, that if you had acute core pulmonary, it would be implied that you were in acute right-sided heart failure and you had uh, the pulmonary hypertension. It would all be intrinsic and integral to that situation. You wouldn't need to separately report them. The coding is not doing us any favors right now because we're so limited. We kind of have to come up with creative ways to get what we can on the chart, and I'm hoping that that will change in the future. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how those relationships might or might not be clarified. Uh, I am personally happy to see high output heart failure added as well as end-stage heart failure, particularly for those patient hospitals that admit a lot of end-stage heart failure patients for bridging devices and transplants because uh, there really has been no way to show the severity of uh, end-stage heart failure in those patients. And those are up-and-coming terms that the newer, the, you know, cardiologists are starting to want to capture, and it would be great if we can actually get it in the data in codes as well. All right. So some good news there for the, for the new code release. Um, all right, we'll just move quickly now to our Actus Update segment. Again, Actus Update is a regular segment uh, featuring what's going on inside of Actus. Today I just wanted to uh, show you briefly a new boot camp that we have out called Mastering Clinical Concepts in CDI. You might have seen the, the slide on the lead into the show. This is a, a new three-day class. You know, uh, it's really designed for sort of the person, the CDI professional who's been in the profession for a while um, and is looking for some higher level clinical discussion. Um, also looking for folks that might need to brush up on pathophysiological comp concepts, the, some of the stuff we were talking about on today's program. Um, Alan developed this class in conjunction with our CDI education director, Laurie Prescott. We've just recently rolled it out to some really good results. Um, it is coming up soon. It, it features a lot of hands-on practical format. Um, you know, it's really designed to enhance critical thinking skills, prepare CDI specialists to be leaders in their field. Um, and really, you know, to, to work with providers, uh, communicate with them collaboratively, you know, not just send queries about a condition, but to get into these type of in-depth discussions about borderline cases, gray cases, um, you know, terminology that might be, uh, you know, from the type 3 definitions and uh, might not be as well known and, you know, really to get you update on, on the latest pathophys coding uh, concepts and CDI. So I'm very excited about it. If you'd like to check it out, it's here on the website. You can find it on hcmarketplace.com. Um, there's a full, we have the uh, locations and dates of upcoming, of upcoming classes, the full course outlines. You can take a look at exactly what it covers. Um, certainly if you have any questions, you can direct them to me and or to Alan. Uh, the CE type credit types are all up as well. So I would encourage you to check that out. Alan, any, any final comments on this class? I know you taught it for the first time and we'll be teaching it again soon. I think this class is a fantastic class for anyone who has taken the training previously and they want to be refreshed. It's been a few years and they need to take some training again. And maybe they didn't want to take the basic again because that would almost be a repeat. This, this gives you something different. We took a lot of the coding out of it and stuck to more of the pathophysiology. We also did make an effort, however, to include the most relevant changes for the last year or two so that it can double as a refresher course. 
This is also an excellent class for those advanced coders, some coders out there who are getting into CDI who want to get more into the pathophysiology and don't, frankly don't need to rehear all those coding rules again. This is the perfect class for those people. Uh, the physicians, however, would basically be auditing the course. I think a lot of the stuff, if we had doctors attend this course, a lot of this would be right in their wheelhouse. And I think a physician who's learning it would actually need to hear the coding part because that's the part they're missing. So I'm actually recommending that the, the physicians go and take the, the regular CDI essentials, the regular basic course, and, whereas um, coders and nurses probably would benefit greatly, especially those who are advanced from the new course. Awesome. All right. Thanks for that, Alan. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today's edition of Actus Radio. So we'll be back in two weeks for our next program, which is uh, CDI on a shoestring. We'll be hearing from a couple of facilities with small budgets, uh, but some big ideas for how they can, how they have uh, improved their CDI programs and offer some ideas for those that uh, might not have the latest access uh, to technology and uh, other resources, but are but um, we're sharing some of their great ideas for how they've managed. So, if you have any suggestions for future guests, ideas about the format of the show, please send me an email at bmurphy@actus.org, and I'd be happy to entertain that. If not, I will uh, see you on the other side of July 4th. Have a great weekend, everyone, and uh, we'll see you soon. Take care, all.